Acts 5, Part 1, from the sermon series, Acts of the Holy Spirit, spoken by Pastor Douglas Cho. Afternoon. Happy holidays. Right? Some of you have been in holiday mode since the day after Halloween, which is fine. <laughs> Last week was our official Thanksgiving service, but something I want to highlight about their testimonies, which is really important. Oh, is that us? Oh, cool. Something I want to highlight about their testimonies is that when we go on these ambassador trips or even short-term missions trips, there's a Western mentality that believes that we're going there to fix something or to rescue somebody, right? This, this short-term trip is something that we're going to do and we're going to like, invest something and it's going to create all this change. But what we really need to look towards to is the long-term change. Right? And the people who are affecting the long-term change are the missionaries who are living out there, who are you know, doing the work, who know the community, who are raising up indigenous leaders. So what the best thing to do is, is when you go on these trips, and we highly encourage you to do so, is to connect with and partner with someone who is out there and come back and tell us about it. Spread the news. That is one of the most powerful things you can do about that. Cool. Uh, so yes, last week, our Thanksgiving service, it was a great time. There's a lot of food. There was 20, 20 pound turkeys. There is just a lot of people in here. I, that's me. Um, we're all just having a great time. Um, lots of food, lots of family, just great time, right? And what was really cool about that day was just seeing everyone in this room, fellowshipping with one another, talking, meeting new people. But what I love the most about the Thanksgiving service is actually the baptisms and the confirmations of faith. Those are the most incredible. More than the food, more than the celebration is, is this time that we have to observe these 10 people during these services that choose to declare their faith, that choose to declare that God is their father, that Jesus is their savior, and that the Holy Spirit resides in them. This is the picture of victory. And so I hope we can really cherish those moments. There are times where I wish the whole service was just the testimonies of, this, of these people, that we would hear what God is doing in their lives. What a mighty God we worship. What a sovereign king that speaks to us. What an awesome father who tells us he loves us. And on top of that, last week, Pastor Peter, he spoke a powerful word on what it means to have integrity with our money and integrity with our sin and our brokenness. And this is important because we're going to continue in this vein. But what stuck out to me was something that he emphasized. And it was that the church is something that God deeply loves. The church is something that God deeply loves. We are the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. And what that means for us is that you really matter. Like what happens here really matters. What the church does really matters. And today, we're going to continue in that and we're going to talk about what being a witness for God looks like. But before we go into the sermon, I, I really want to tell you, tell you guys, your primary calling is not to do something, it is to be. It is to be a son, it is to be a daughter of God. You are called to live in that place. 
And I know that most of us in this room know that God loves us. We know this. It's painfully cliche, unfortunately. But we haven't experienced this love in a long time. We're primarily called to experience this deep love. And I believe it is from that place and only this, this place where we can truly be a witness. So if you could just bow with me, we're going to pray. And we're just going to pray that each and every single person in this room encounters the love of God. Would you pray that? Would you pray that for yourself? Would you pray that for your neighbor? That you would encounter the love of God. Father, we need you to speak. We need your word, Lord. Would it be heard in this room? This room is your sanctuary because you are here, God. So would you speak mightily? And would your people receive this word? Would it bring healing? Healing from pain, healing from shame, from wounding, from guilt. Would it bring redemption, revival, Lord? And that God, you would be glorified. So we thank you for this time that we have with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're reading from Acts 5. We're starting from verse 17. <clears throat> then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. 
But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. When he addressed the Sanhedrin, he said, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed. It all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. It's the word of God. The first thing we see here, a witness is someone who knows God will make a way to share the gospel. Pastor David coined it, a witness is unstoppable. If you've read this whole chapter, you'll see that before this passage, the apostles are out and they are working in full force. Right? They are performing signs and miracles and wonders to all the people. People are being healed. And all these men and women within the city are putting their faith in the name of Jesus Christ. It's a powerful scene. It's so powerful that people are taking their sick and they're lining them up on the street that Peter might walk on so that his shadow would touch them. Right? That's crazy. They just want his shadow to touch them, to heal them. And so the Sadducees, they get jealous because of all this attention they're getting, right? They get jealous a lot in the Bible. So what they do is they throw the apostles in prison. They throw them in prison and miracles, signs, wonders, done, over, right? Taken care of. But what happens here is really cool because a miracle comes to the apostles and it's the first time it happens to them. While they're in prison, an angel of the Lord comes. The angel commands them, go. Teach in the temple courts with this freedom that you have. And when we read scripture, we have to acknowledge that uh, when an angel of the Lord comes and speaks and acts, the angel is God's representative. So what we have here is that God is actually freeing the apostles. God is actually commanding the apostles, go teach in the temple courts. God is actually in control of this situation. And the next morning, the guards come, they check, the apostles aren't there. So they return to the captain and the chief priest saying, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. The text here says the chief priest, the captain of the guards, they were at a loss. Other translations say they were perplexed. If you look into it, what it means is they lacked the capability to understand what just happened. 
Their minds were blown. They had no idea what just happened. Then, as they're thinking about this, as they're sitting in this, another report comes, and this report is the apostles that are missing. They're they're right outside in the temple courts. They're teaching again. It's like, oh, okay. So they send the guards to go get them. And this is what happens in verse 26. Verse 26 is very interesting. Read it with me. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. See, the captain had every right to apprehend these apostles. He had every right to use force to bring them in, right? They were disobeying the law. They were, you know, prison escapees, essentially, right? So they, they had, like, the civil authority given to them to use force to bring them in. But they fear something. They fear this, this stoning that might happen. And why this is so interesting is that stoning was a judgment left exclusively to devout Jewish leadership. It's deeply rooted in religion. So only the Jewish leadership had the authority to exercise this. So for the guards to internally respond in fear of stoning when they use force on the apostles, it shows us that there's a subtle shift of spiritual authority being made here, that they recognize that the apostles are acting in authority, that God may be behind them. And so the way I imagine this, imagine this scene when, when these wary guards come to these apostles, I imagine them coming and sign, kind of sort of sternly asking them, you know, just come with me, commanding them. And the apostles they just go. Like, what? Because if I were one of the apostles and an angel had just come visit me during the night, opened my prison cell and said, go, I command you to preach and teach in the temple courts, yeah, okay, I'm there. But if a guard is now taking me back to prison, I'd say, excuse me, no. I just saw an angel. Have you seen an angel? The angel told me to stay here, so I'm going to stay here. I would cause a fuss, right? But what happens is the guard says, come with me. They say, okay, I'm going. So they go. It's kind of crazy. And all this, this courageous stand to witness for God, it stays in full obedience to civil authority. It's very interesting. And what I see here is that the apostles, their faith was so great that they truly believed that God would probably make a way for them again. That even if they were apprehended, even if they were thrown into prison, God would make a way for them again because he is in control and he will make a way. Our society um, is becoming more and more pluralistic. And it's actually not very attractive to say that there is one God. There is one God who is supreme over all things. And this God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and die for your sins. That is not very attractive to say. It's not very PC. It's very exclusivist. And in our society today, we, we're in a, we are in an arena where there is a very harsh intolerance for those who seem intolerant. Right. 
And so, you know, when I was working in the city, I would walk through Times Square and, you know, like you, you would randomly see the people with like the big sign that has God and hell on it and they're just like screaming and I would just be like, oh God, like I don't want to be caught up in like what's going on there and I would just go straight to work, right? Or if you go online, if you go on the internet and you're on YouTube on a worship song or a sermon video, right? I have this sick and twisted habit of going to the comment section right? If you look at the comment section, usually what, what you see in the comment section is like a flood of like fire emojis, right? Everyone's like, oh, God's so good, fire, right? It's so good, <laughs> so awesome. But then you always have like that one or two commenter there, and it's like, why are you here? But they comment, and it always sounds something like atheist here. I was a Christian for 15 years, but now I no longer believe because this is all a sham. You're all a sham. This is stupid, right? And then, you know, like they have like a thousand likes on it and people responding. And then there's always that poor one old lady that's trying to defend the, the Lord like online to all these people. And I look at that, I'm like, I am not getting caught up in that. But when you think about it, it's times like this it's times like this when our faith, what we believe, when that is in contention with public thought, that God is calling you to be a witness for his name. God is calling you to be a witness on his behalf. It may not be on social media, it may not be online, but it could definitely be in your workplace. It could definitely be in your social circles. When I was working at my bank, um, and they found out I was leaving to become a pastor, right? Three things happened. One was, I never got so many questions about being a priest, right? They're like, oh, you're gonna be a priest. I'm like, no, I'm gonna be a pastor. They're like, oh, what made you wanna give up sex? And I'll be like, <laughs> I don't know. Right? Those, those two questions, always. I'll be like, I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> but the third thing that happened was, that was really cool is like during lunch, you know, I'd have people sit down with me and they'd want to talk about faith. They'd want to hear what I had to say. They wanted to understand why I thought Jesus was the way, the truth, the life. What did that mean? What does it mean? So for those of you that then this next time does come up, that half a second to second moment that you can either decide to deflect this conversation or you can decide to dive in and enter into it. I really hope you do. I really hope you do dive into this conversation because God makes a way for the gospel to invade any space. Amen. Amen? Amen? The good news you share about God's work in your life, it's not rambling. It's not stupid. It's not simple. When you share that news, you are being a light in darkness. So I pray you'll be bold in your obedience there. And that's our next point. The next thing we see here is that a witness is someone who is bold in obedience. Verse 19 and 20. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people, all about this new life. Verse 25. 
Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. So what happens is the apostles are preaching. They get thrown in jail. The angel comes, frees them, commands them to be in the temple courts, right? And so they go. They go the very next day. It says at daybreak, they go. God is saying, do it again in plain sight. Just do it again. This is a really bold move here, right? And you have to understand, this is a huge challenge to the establishment because the temple was the Sanhedrin's home court, right? The temple was controlled by the Sanhedrin. They had the human authority in this place. So to go and to escape prison and to teach right in the temple courts, I mean, they're just escaping to get caught again. That's it. And knowing this, they go at daybreak and they preach, they teach. And then we see this after the guards thank them in. Verse 27, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. The high priest is not happy. He is not happy. And this is a very intense situation that we have here because this council, the Sanhedrin, was the very council that put Jesus to death. So we have to understand these people, they have real power. They have real influence. It's a real threat. And then we see Peter's response in the most blunt fashion. I can't help it. God told me to do it. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. Are you kidding me? Can you kidding me? Can you imagine? Well, you know, for those of you who are parents, imagine. And your child is blatantly disobeying you. Blatantly. And you approach this child of yours. You say, what are you doing? Stop that. You're disobeying me. And your child looks up at you and says, Mommy, Daddy, I must obey God, not human beings. That poor child. Can you imagine that audacity? But that is the boldness in which Peter has, in which he speaks to the Sanhedrin. And then he states himself again. God of our ancestors raised Jesus Christ from the dead, whom you killed. Essentially what he's saying, we will never stop preaching this word. And then he reveals two things about Jesus' identity. One, that he is the son of God. He calls him the prince or the king of kings. And the second is that he calls him the savior of Israel. It's the first time it's ever said in Acts. Verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. In his boldness, he actually preaches the very message that they're telling him to stop. He preaches to the people that are telling him to stop. And then he identifies the group. We are witnesses 
This is our testimony. This is our story. And you bet that this hit a sore spot. In verse 33, the Sanhedrin, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. The apostles are treading in dangerous water here. There's a risk and a cost to this obedience. It is a very hostile environment that we have. And we must acknowledge and understand that bold obedience does not promise that things are always going to turn out pretty. It's a hard word. But Jesus modeled that for us. His obedience led him to betrayal. His obedience led him to the cross. Bold obedience does not always look pretty. But there's something so fascinating about it. There's something so fascinating when you encounter someone that is really in a season of anguish or when they're coming out of a season of anguish and you see this person and they're just struggling to rejoice in God's work in their life. Yes, they're mourning. Yes, they are grieving, but they are struggling. They are doing the best they can to rejoice in the Lord. It's beautiful. Something about it, it, it stirs something inside the spirit. And I'm going to talk more about that later. But we're going to enter into our third point and the last point. And what we see here is that a witness is someone who can rejoice. Verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared claiming to be somebody and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of uh, led a band of men in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. The Pharisee Gamaliel, he senses the bloodthirst of his comrades. And so he decides to, you know, Tell the apostles, you know, step outside for a second. And he tells them, you know, let's spare these people for now. Let's not do anything, right? And we have, what we have to understand about Gamaliel is that he's very smart. He's actually a renowned Pharisee, a renowned teacher of the, the Torah. And he's actually Saul's mentor, right? Saul's mentor before Saul became Paul. And what we see here is that on the surface, it looks like he's throwing them a bone. You know, like, don't do anything. Don't, don't, don't kill them. But what we have to understand here is that Gamaliel has his own agenda, right? We have to see, we have to note that he was part of the Sanhedrin. He was part of the council that put Jesus to death. And the other thing we have to note is that he takes Jesus and he puts him on par with extremists, these revolutionaries. These extremists who they rose up and they, they gathered a bunch of people, but they were killed, they died, and then everyone forgot about them. And he really does believe that everyone will forget about the name of Jesus 
of Nazareth. He said, don't do anything. So what do they decide to do? Verse 40, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. I think this is a pretty stark contrast to what we see in the beginning. You know, like they're, they're teaching, they're preaching, they're obeying God's word and you know, they get thrown into prison, but an angel comes and, you know, frees them and this miracle happens. So, you know, you would think, because the reason why they're before the council now is because they obeyed God's directive. You would think that while they're teaching and preaching, you know, I don't know, God would send fire, right? He, God, he sends fire a lot in the Bible. Or he, like, God would blind someone and it would really show that the apostles have the spiritual authority of the Lord himself behind them. But that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And scripture tells us that those who testify on behalf of Jesus will be persecuted for his namesake. It's a guarantee. It's littered all throughout Matthew. For, uh, chapter 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Or chapter 10, 39. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And then you skip over to 1 Peter 4. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. There is a myriad of verses in the Bible that tell us hardship is guaranteed and we are called to rejoice in that suffering. But why? Why? Right? Why? why? Like, why not wallow when we're suffering? That's kind of more natural. Why not, you know, be down while we're suffering? Why rejoice while we're suffering? Why? I believe the answer to that is based within the concept of blessing the Lord. Right? When you read Psalm 103, um, the words praise the Lord are all through it. If you have the NMV, it says praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Other translations, they say bless the Lord. And if you're asking yourself right now, how do I bless the Lord? That's a really logical question, right? How do you bless someone or a being that is omnipotent, omniscient, higher than all things, sovereign over everything? How do you bless that? Right? And when we read this in the context of praise and bless, it actually more accurately means joyfully announce the goodness of God. Joyfully announce the goodness of God. Declare his goodness in your word and deed. Do that and you will certainly bless your heavenly father. I truly believe that that is why when we see those who are suffering to praise trying to praise the Lord, you know, those who are really anguishing. And, you know, maybe they're not successful. 
Maybe they're struggling to put the words together. Something stirs in the spirit. Something about the praise from the valley is so beautiful. God is especially blessed when you rejoice in your suffering. These disciples are questioned and flogged, and their response, rejoice. Rejoice that they could suffer dishonor for the sake of the name of Jesus. Their joy comes from the fact that they were considered worthy enough to suffer for Christ's behalf. And what do they do? They choose to never stop teaching and preaching this word, even after they were flogged and cast away. But we have to be clear here is that suffering is not as a result of masochism, right? We're not seeking this out. Suffering is a result of ministry. It's from the result of being a witness. See, Peter doesn't want to suffer, right? He doesn't seek to suffer. But what Peter desires is he seeks to obey the one he loves, even if that means to suffer. And because he can suffer for the one he loves, he can rejoice because he knows his Savior is blessed. <sighs> Being a witness is not an easy word. And I preached all these things, and it's, it's challenging. It, it'll, it'll challenge the way you live your life, interact with people. In fact, the Greek word for witness in the Bible is martyr, martyr. And if you don't know, if you haven't read Acts, a lot of the apostles die. It doesn't work out really well for them. Peter, in all his bold obedience, he gets crucified. Where is the blessing? Man, when I look at Peter, you know, and you read about him in the Gospels, and you see him, you know, Jesus was just obtained and you know a little servant girl accuses him of knowing Christ and he swears I have no to this little girl I don't know who he is and we see the contrast of it, between that and now this bold obedience that gets him killed his transformation man it's inspiring but for me, sometimes it's really discouraging. Last year, this past, uh, not this past Thanksgiving, but the Thanksgiving before, it was a little different for me. Uh, one, because my parents were actually gonna be around for the holidays. But two, I was bringing my then fiance to Thanksgiving. And she was gonna like meet all my family. And so, you know, I, some nerves there, you know, but I was trying to keep it cool. Cause you know, I had to keep it cool for my woman. Didn't want her to be nervous. And so my family and I, my mom, my dad, my sister, we all meet up and you know, we all decide that Doug is gonna drive, which is my nightmare, right? It is my nightmare because driving gives me anxiety. Two, my mother and my father are excellent, outspoken backseat drivers. <laughs> and the third is we always choose to drive their car, not my car. Right? So I have to drive, the, it's like, it's just not, not comfortable, right? I'm not used to driving their car. 
And so we're going, and we're trying to find this house. It's like up this really steep hill. And I actually, I passed the house by like 20 or 30 feet. Like I stop. I'm like, oh my God, what do I do? Do I like pull a Yui? Like what am I supposed to do right here, right? And right when this happens, I just hear my dad, you got to go back. You got to go back. You got to go back. And I'm like, I know. I know. Right? There's cars passing by. My mom's just yelling at me. She's like, be careful. Be careful. Be careful. My dad's like, reverse, reverse, reverse. And I'm trying to reverse this car. So my, my attention is being pulled in like so many different ways. Man, anxiety at its peak. Right? So I'm reversing, I'm reversing, I'm trying to listen to them. And then, bam, I hit my uncle's car. This is right in front of my, my, uh, my cousin's house. I can feel the blood rushing to my head. And I'm like, dear God, keep it cool. Right then and there, my dad says, what the hell are you doing? What the hell are you doing? What the hell are you doing? And I'm like, okay, I'm playing it cool. I'm playing it cool. I look at him like, dad, stop. Please stop. You know, I'm trying to park this car. You know, I parked the car. But he just keeps repeating himself over and over again. What the hell are you doing? What the hell are you doing? We get out of the car. What were you thinking? Were you even thinking? I'm like getting a little agitated right now. We grab the food. He's like, what's the matter with you? They're berating me. And finally, he says it again, and I snap. I drop everything. I ball up my fist. I walk up to him. I grab him, and I say, you tell me I effed up one more time. I dare you. Just rage. Couldn't see anything else. It was so bad. Sonia got scared. She had to cut between us. And she had to be like, you need to calm down. Your cousins are watching. It was bad. I snapped out of it. And I looked at this man's face. It was the first time I ever saw him scared. And at that moment, a really dark thought crossed my mind. Many of you know my journey with this man. You know, through the abuse and through all of the torment, all the healing, all the crying, all the praying. Many of you have been on this journey with me. I've even preached about how it's been so hard to reconcile with him, to love him, to forgive him, to be a witness to him. At that moment, a voice in my head said, what happened to your transformation, pastor? Where'd it go? How are you going to be a witness now? That thought crushed me. You know, the festivities went on. I, I kind of like got him next to him. I apologized. And, you know, he was really sad. It was discouraging. It really was. And it made me feel like, did I lose my credibility? Am I not able to witness? I, I, claim, I, I told him I loved him. But we have to understand that is not the case here. 
Because God redeems those things. God calls you time and time again to witness to him. And I still get to witness to this man today. It was hard. We had to work through it. But you know, I, I eventually, we got, I got married and he was at my wedding. He cried at my wedding. It was one of the first times I seen this man cry. Being a witness is not easy. And I want to share this with the one that struggles to be a witness to their parents because of past heartache and bitterness. To, one, to the one who struggles to be a witness to their spouse or significant other because they can't stop you know, lashing out and releasing their anger onto this person. To the one that struggles to be a witness to their child because they can't seem to gather enough patience for this, this little person. To the one that struggles to be a witness because they feel like they're too broken or too damaged to be a good one. The Father loves you. No matter how much you screw up, the Father loves you. And in those moments, Jesus is asking you, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And if your answer is, yes, Lord, I know I love you and you know it too, then take heart and try and try again. Because just as G Jesus reinstated Peter, he will reinstate you. We are all still healing. And we will all always be in progress running this race until the day we see Jesus again. Let's pray together. <clears throat> right now, you know, we meditated a little earlier on experiencing the Father's love. But would you really just Embrace that. Be hungry for that. That healing love. That love that can redeem your mistakes. It can heal your relationships. And if you're with someone here today that you, know, you really have been struggling to be a witness to, that maybe you even feel a little guilty about, You know, I want you to think about this person or if this person is right next to you, I want you to put your hand on that person. Just say, God, I want to be a witness to this person right here. God, I want them to know you. I want them to know and hear about the good work that you've done. I want to be your hands and your feet in this relationship. I know I don't always do it well, but I want to. God, would you help me to experience your love again? That it would be from this place, this place of knowing that I am your son, I am your daughter, 
and that you love me so dearly that you would choose me to use me to speak to this person. say a prayer against any shame, any guilt, any condemnation, any condemning thoughts that run through our minds, any mistakes that we've made in public or private, any sins. The God who calls us his own is the God who broke death is the God who destroyed sin, is the God who sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come, to be a man, to dwell among us, to die on the cross for us, and to be raised and lifted up on high for our sins, that we might have his righteousness, that we might be like him. The old is gone, the new has come. You are robed in righteousness right now. That is who you are. And that is what you are a witness to. That is your story. That is your testimony. And it is from that place that you go out into the world and you destroy darkness because you carry light with you. And you're going to mess up. You'll never have it perfect. But when you do, Christ's response to you, his question for you is, do you love me? It is not one of accusation. It is not one of condemnation. It is just a simple question. Do you love me? And if your answer is, yes, Lord, you know I do. He will tell you, go feed my sheep. Minister to my people. I'm just going to pray for a little bit. Father, we ask that you bring your spirit into this room and your spirit would bring with him healing from wounds, healing from lies, from curses, from guilt, from shame. That you would reawaken us to the deep and profound love that you have for us the one that shatters realities, the one that alters lives, Lord. The love of a father for his child. The love that gave up everything so that we could be in relationship with you. 
Would you pour that into us right now? Would you call your witnesses to rise and declare their testimony to the world, Lord? That we would change the face of this world by declaring your work in us. And that you would be blessed, God, by what you see here as we declare your goodness. We bless you, Lord. We bless you, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. If you have your communication card, could you just flip that over? We have some next steps. The first is that I am committing my life to Jesus for the first time. And if you are doing this, this is beautiful. This is, this is what we exist for. This is victory at its finest. If you are doing this for the first time, there's a table specifically out those double doors. It is specifically for you, this table. Someone will be out there to answer any of your questions, to pray with you, to walk with you, whatever you need. The second is that I will pray about what bold obedience in my life looks like. Who is God calling you to witness to? Your family, your coworkers, your friends. How is God calling you to change the way you live? The third is I will find ways to proclaim the gospel outside of church during this holiday season. You know, we see a lot of those banners that say, Jesus is the reason for the season. You know, it's like, oh my God. But as followers of Christ, would we really be proud during this time that Christ came to us to love us and share it? The fourth is I will find someone to share my suffering with. It's through our suffering a lot of times that we can be a witness to someone or that that person can be a witness to us. Would you please do that this week? And the last is I will read Acts 6, 1 through 15 in preparation for next week. Pastor Peter is going to be preaching a powerful sermon on this. Uh, December 9th, I have a couple announcements. December 9th is the singles lunch. Um, we're going to have the halal guys catered. Yeah, it's really good. And we're going to celebrate the end of the year. That's right. You can clap it up. It's okay. Um, but more importantly than that is December 9th is we're going to have something called the, an Angel Tree Party. Angel Tree is an organization that partners with people to bring presents to children who have a parent that is incarcerated. Right? Um, but we're actually doing something really special this year. We're throwing a Christmas party for the children right here in Greco. And this is an amazing opportunity to actually show up and be a witness, right? Just your presence will mean so much to these kids. So if you're single, please do come to lunch, but then stick around. You know, stick around and come to this party. Uh, Ruth is going to be outside at the Angel Tree table uh, for volunteer signups. We do need a lot of volunteers to help throw this party. We want to make it as big as we can for these kids and really celebrate the holidays with them. Outside those double doors is also another table for the food drive. If you'd like food for the holidays, but you're not really comfortable with sharing all your information on, on the table, there's a card that you can take. It has Mama Moore's and Janine's information on it. You can take that and you can talk to them privately of requesting food 